0: Today, uh, we're going to continue our series, Swipe Right. We're in uh, episode four. There's one more episode left after this, so we're almost done. And again, I just wanted to highlight the fact how significant it is that we're arriving from different places and different methods, but somehow God mysteriously is still drawing us into one. So welcome to those who are on YouTube, I haven't said hi to those yet, hello to those who are listening on our podcast, greetings to you good people here at Church Online, felicitations to our friends on Facebook, and salutations to our fabulous Church Online friends there. Thank you for being a valuable part of Into One, wherever it is that you are joining us from. Last episode, we were talking about some of the lies that our, cult, our culture tells us uh, that We believe about sex, and one of the big ideas there, um, for some reason, people really love this one, is to to sell the idea that marriage is a drag, sex and romance. Well, those things are awesome, but the idea of marriage, come on, that's just what we snicker about, and we'll, we'll we'll say these things to people. You know, I I know you think that it will be different for you, but you're just like the rest of us. You'll see. That feeds the idea that you, you better get all of this wild living out of your system while you're young. Because once you get to the altar, get married, man, oh man, everything from then on is just going to be devoid of fun, devoid of passion. It's completely lacking in spontaneity because that's when the real prison sentence begins. That kind of idea, right? It comes up all the time. We see it in movies. It's so common. We see it in TV too. When I was engaged to Cheryl, it was on TV everywhere, especially on my favorite show, Seinfeld. When I was in in my engagement period, it was the same time that George was engaged to marry Susan, and everything in the show was joining together to say that it was going to be the end. It's no good. You're killing independent George! And that's what I had to live with constantly in my head. There was an article in Time Magazine a while back, and the whole, the whole topic that was shown on the cover was marriage, and so there was, a, the whole magazine is given over to these little mini-articles throughout that were all talking about marriage or different aspects of marriage. But the main article, it began this way, so brace, brace yourself, this is what it said, there's always a reason fairy tales, there's a reason why fairy tales always end in marriage, and it's true if you think about it, romantic comedies, fairy tales, they always head towards marriage, and then the the, the titles roll. And they explain it like this. It's because nobody wants to see what comes after. It's too grim. It goes on. Meeting the right person, working through comic misunderstandings, these are stories worth telling. Even overcoming disapproval from family to get to the altar. But plodding on year after year with that same old soul? Yonsville. This is the marriage, the lie that marriage is lame, and this is the lie that there's no fun after that initial spark and in chemistry, the sizzle, the passion of the newness of a relationship. After that, it's all just ball and chain, year after year, same old soul, just serving out your time. It's a pretty good summary. Of what some, so much of that well-intentioned advice that uh, people give to the engaged or to newlyweds, people come up to you and know, say, put their hand on your shoulder and just say, get ready. It's coming. Brace yourself. First year, whew, first year is going to be tough. Only thing tougher than the first year is going to be the second year. Close your eyes. Grit your teeth. Hang on. But then, also prepare yourself, because prepare, prepare because year seven's coming. That's the seven-year itch. It's heading your way, and it's bleak. It's all so bleak. But, hey, just call me when it gets really dark. I'm here for you, man. And so you head into marriage, and you're looking into uh, what's, what's coming, and you're watching for the terrible. You say, I know that it feels good today, but I also know i got to be ready for the horrible. I know not to be tricked by these good days. I know what's really coming. Oh, come on already. This is the way. Why do we keep doing this? I know that there are and there are always will be challenges. But do you know what's also true? Do you know what might be more true? Marriage can be enjoyable. It can be fun. So take it for what it's worth, okay? Cheryl and I will be married 24 years this December. That's December 28th. You know, maybe you want to write that part down. And I'm a guy who's been married for 24 years, and I want to tell you this. Marriage is still good. Marriage is still life-giving. So if you think it's going to be all ball and chain and same old, same old, no passion, no spontaneity, that's your choice, I suppose. But you can also think of it this way. I'm 24 years deep into a slumber party with my best friend with the one who knows me best and is still around. We laugh. We explore. We get to do things together. We share things. We have our moments. We have our connection points. And the last thing that's on my mind is starting up a new relationship with someone because of all the stuff that I've already gone through. We've worked through together. We have overcome together. We got knocked down together. We've bled together. We've cried together. We've had so many inside jokes that none of you will understand. Only Cheryl knows why 10 cents is less than a dime. We've got so many stories. I've got blood equity. I've got sweat equity. I've got tear equity paid up into this relationship, and it's been so incredibly memorable, full of things that we didn't expect. Interesting thing, same article goes on to say later on, to admit this later on, it says, studies do suggest, almost like it's a concession, right? That married people have better sex, better health, better wealth, probably die happier than singles with a lower likelihood of strikes, strokes, heart disease, and depression. Married people also respond better to stress and heal more quickly. But it's a drag. It's terrible. And you're probably not going to want any of it because it's Yonsville. Did you hear that list of benefits? Come on. You turn into an X-Man when you get married. You'll heal quicker. You get adamantium bones. It's awesome. Why is it that that part, that part of the research is is buried deep into the article? It's not the lead. I mean, oh sure, you'll be happier, you'll be richer, but who wants that anyways, right? Yonsville, that's the work of a liar, an evil, malicious spin doctor. The devil's been a liar from the beginning, and it it is his mission to steal, kill, and destroy everything that is valuable to the Father's heart. And you are precious, valuable beyond measure to God. The devil has taken something that was perfectly fantastic, marriage, and he's tricked us to approach it in a way that is different than how God intended it. And then when the results are now disadvantageous, when the results are not pleasing, when we get out of it what God didn't want us to get out of it because we did it differently than what God told us to do, how he wanted us to be, then we say, oh, pfft, marriage is fault. Somehow marriage is at fault for this. And you know it's not marriage's fault. It's your fault, Satan. You're the one who tricked us. You're the one who misled us into approaching it in a way that God said not to. And now you're going to sit there and blame it on marriage? We should just do away with marriage. Marriage doesn't work right. Marriage is terrible. Here's an inspired marriage proverb. Proverbs 18, 22. Find a good spouse and find a good life. Even more, the favor of God. So if you approach it God's way, there's something powerful. There's something of a blessing. There's something of God's favor in it. It will enrich your life. It's a wonderful thing. And I get so tired of people trashing marriage or cutting down wives or cutting down husbands just because some marriages have gone sideways. And I want to celebrate marriage. I, want to, I think marriage is fabulous. I think it's fantastic. It's a blessing. It's a gift. It's an opportunity. And I highly recommend it. You find a good spouse, you receive favor from the Lord. I'm not saying it's easy. Did you hear me say that it's easy? I didn't say that it's easy. It would be lying. And in this world, you know, it would be lunacy to try and say that anything that this hard would be easy. We've all heard all the stats. We know how it goes. And the summary of all the stats is that far too many people for one reason or another end up out of marriage but no one gets into a marriage to leave it. And what I'm saying is that marriage is worth fighting for. Marriage is a pathway to blessing. You can get there. Study after study shows that if you get through difficult parts, you get through difficult days, there's a great blessing that kicks in. There's an exponential increase in your enjoyment that can kick in. Enjoyment in sex, enjoyment in satisfaction, Enjoyment in connection far more than if you run off to try and find someone else. And that's the approach that the enemy is working so hard to get us to follow. It has worked far too many times. But God has something better. Today it's all about how to fight for and why I think you should fight for all that God wants for you. Fight for all that God has set aside for you, whether you're married or you're single or you're single now, or you've been divorced, or you're going through divorce, or you're widowed. It doesn't matter where you're at in this whole series. The tone of it is from this day forward. Because I didn't come to try and make you feel bad about your past. I came to fight for your future and to help you fight for your future because that's God's mentality. He never tries to just take our head and rub it in the carpet of our shame. Rather, he tries to understand, help us to understand that there is uh, the possibility of a brighter future for tomorrow. So I don't want any of you to hang your head in shame. I don't want you to slump your shoulders in condemnation because I can't do anything about what's in my closet. And you can't do anything about what's in yours. But we can make decisions to live carefully today and protect our future if we'll hear God's voice. So, from this day forward, from this moment forward, perhaps with a different thought in mind as to how we approach the time that we've got left on the clock. If you have a Bible, the modern, you know, paper version, one of those, or maybe the ancient manuscript, join me in Exodus chapter 17. If you have a digital mobile Bible or you're looking for a free Bible app, there's one. It's called YouVersion or in the app store, it's called just the Bible. It's amazing. So handy. You can take it with you anywhere, everywhere that you go. It's got multiple languages in it. It's got multiple versions in it and Bible reading plans, and it will even read to you. It's amazing, and it's free. So if you have that, go ahead, open that up too. Exodus chapter 17. It's the second book of the Bible just to help you in your search. Some of you I've also found that you can even engage at Into One Church Online. And for those of you who, jo- who are joining us at Church Online today, we're really glad that you chose to share your time with us. So thank you. Exodus 17. It's an interesting story. It takes place just after the children of Israel have left Egypt. And we've looked at elements of this story already. They're trying to make their way to the promised land. And one, the, the, the first big kind of thing that happens, we talked about a little bit about this uh, in episode one. They, they just get across the Red Sea, but now they're all thirsty. And uh, they're surrounded, though, by salty water, bitter water. And God uh, made the water sweet, or He made it not salty for them. And then another thing that happened pretty much right at the beginning, they just come out of this. God's done all these miracles. He's rescued us, He's taken us here. And they cross the Red Sea, and now they're making their way. Um, Uh, what would eventually become a 40-year journey to get to the promised land. Never mind that it took so much longer because they they didn't do what they were supposed to do. They didn't follow the plan that God laid out for them. And then they get attacked. They're out here and now attacked. This is a fight that just kind of broke out. There's a people group that's called the Amalekites that surrounded them. And here's what's interesting. Throughout the Bible, so so throughout all of these different books that, that span thousands of years, there's Compiled a consistent language about God and how He compares His relationship to His people like a marriage relationship. And we'll talk about how someone coming to know Jesus as, as though they're someone who's entered into this wedding. One of the names for the church is the bride of Christ. So, really, you have uh, Israelites, they're, they're, they're leaving slavery, they, all these miracles. We've had a wonderful connection ceremony. And now they're kind of entering that honeymoon phase with their relationship with God. They're just on the other side and it just lines up so well with the reality that right after you enter into this honeymoon period, you can expect the unexpected, the wild, savage fight that they're going to have to deal with. And what we're going to try and do is is to learn from them what they did and how they responded and how we're going to approach our relationships, fighting for all that God has for us. Because God's plans are worth fighting for. We're going to try and learn from their strategy that they employ dealing with this difficulty. So Exodus chapter 17, starting at verse 9. And Moses said to Joshua, choose us some men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. 10. So Joshua did as Moses said to him and fought with Amalek and Moses Aaron and her went to the top of the hill 11 and so it was that Moses held up his hand Israel prevailed and when he let down his hand Amalek prevailed 12 but Moses hands came heavy and so they took a stone and they put it under him and he sat on it. And Aaron and her supported his hands, one on one side and one on the other side. And his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. 13. So Joshua defeated Amalek and the people with the edge of the sword. In all relationships, conflict is inevitable. One of the reasons, especially within marriage, is because whatever God begins, Satan opposes. That's his modus operandi. When God begins, Satan opposes. And in marriage, you have something supernatural taking place. Last episode, and I guess first episode as well, we talked about how the two become one. Last episode, we heard from the Apostle Paul. He stated it so clearly. Do you remember this? It's so much more to sex than mere skin on skin. Sex is not just physical as much as it is spiritual mystery. Spiritual mystery is much, is, is much more than it is physical fact. And so there's this union that happens when these souls are mingled. And, and, and you come together in the marriage bed. And what God does is he brings two that were living separate lives up to that point And they become one. And that's, that's what's described in Genesis 2.24. The man leaves his father and his mother, and he's joined to his wife. The two become one flesh, okay? That mom, the moment that happens, the devil always opposes whatever God begins. So if that's true, you should see opposition right away. So Genesis 2.24, they come together. Then Genesis 2.25 tells us this. They were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. That's the marriage bed. The very next verse, Genesis 3 1, now the serpent. Interesting. You go back to 224. We have man and the, the, the father, young man leaves his, his father and his mother, and he's joined to his wife. Then we get to 25, naked, unashamed. Next verse, now the serpent. Naked and unashamed, now the serpent. There's a chapter division in our English Bibles. But there wasn't any chapter divisions until the 16th century. Chapters and verses first appeared in 1551. The flow of the text, let's be clear, the flow of that text was not divided. The idea is that the very next, next exact thing to happen, next up. The moment there is a union and two become one, now the serpent. Because he wants to un-one the two. Why? Because he knows what you need to know, that unity releases strength. In any endeavor, those of you who are leaders in education or leaders in business, where there is a unity, there's a power that flows. And the moment you start to get your little kingdoms, little silos, this is my team, this is my job, that's not my job, everyone starts to get into factions. That's the moment when unity weakens, that power crumbles. And God has designed, He's built the universe in such a way that there is a commanded blessing on unity. For good or for evil, unity unleashes power. Whether it's sticking together on a a vision, uh, common language, uh, common identity, there's a commanded blessing on unity. And that's why the devil, one of his main strategies is always to divide so that he can conquer. He'll do it in a church. He'll do it in a family, he'll do it in your marriage, he'll do it in a team. But where there is a selflessness, where uh, a setting aside of your ego, losing the pride and choosing to come together to be part of something bigger than just you, there is tremendous power, tremendous strength that gets released. And that's what God intends to come out of that marriage bed. When two become one and they begin to be their true selves, forgiving and experiencing freedom and trust, being loving and gracious with a spirit of genuine hospitality, when they lose their sense that it's my demands, my way, this is my right, this is my time, you spent this, so I'm going to spend that, when there's one team, one scorecard, when there's that kind of a mentality that, that there's there, that kind of a spirit, when there's that kind of selflessness that would characterize the church, watch out, watch out, Things are gonna happen. And when your mentality is, I am a part of the church, and we exist for the world together. We're losing that that, that that it's just me, that we're part of something that's more than just us, it's powerful. That's how it should be in a good church. That's how it should be in a good marriage. A good company, a good team, a nonprofit, whatever. There's just something so wonderfully refreshing about humility, isn't there? And there's just something that's so obnoxious about pride. And pride refuses to become one. And the devil will try and get you to resist unity because you know what? (laughs) That's not about you. They don't see it the same way that you do. How could you be part of that, right? And the devil will try to get you to say, not me, I'm not going to be a part of that. They're not going to suck me in. That's the idea of division where there's division, there's weakness. And where there's unity, there's power. So the moment the serpent sees something that's powerful happening, he doesn't just look here, okay? He sees follow-through. He's not just scared of you enjoying a good life with your wife and having a healthier life and a lower risk of heart disease and all that. He sees generations of what could happen. And if you rise up in this moment and you decide to be part of God's plan, he sees your legacy. And the devil is scared of the fact that your grandkids, grandkids, grandkids are going to tell the story of your selfless, your united, humble relationship. And they're going to want one like that for themselves. And so he creates uh, dysfunction and pain and brokenness, and unhealthy living here, so that down the road over here, they're now scared of marriage. They think that marriage is really wrong when it was just the approach to marriage that went wrong. It's not the institution. So if you're not going to think follow through from this point, I can guarantee you that your enemy is. And he's looking to your great-grandchildren, already planning their addictions, already looking for their fears. He's already hoping for depression. He sees the pain that comes when you leave God's path for your life. And and he's not just looking here, right? He's he's trying to stop the power that may develop way down here. And that's why in all that we do, we must think follow through. We have have to do whatever we can, anything that we can put in our way to, to, to stop him, to thwart his plan. Look around you right now. Do you think this is happening in our culture? Do you sense the separations, those who are now enemies, the divisions? Swipe Right is all about trading predictable nearness for life-altering intimacy and to stop the enemy from getting things into the relationship that will come between you even before you meet each other. We can stop so much stuff before it ever shows up by dealing with these things in our single years and living a life with a mind towards the future. So what kind of stuff does the enemy want to try and get in here? Well, obviously, he wants to try and get in between us. And so um, there's a lack of forgiveness and harboring grudges. You know, that kind of thing starts to open up that separation. But I can think of things that are simple even as, oh, she's falling down, uh, as, as debt. Um, debt stated, stated in a lot of divorce cases, right? They say the new wedding anthem is like to debt do us part. And so we've got debt that goes in the middle, but it can also be like your, your cell phone, uh, social media that can come between you. And you see those posts on your Instagram, right? Where it used to be pictures of people who were married and that the picture was them in bed and you just see their feet overlapping each other, right? But now what you see is two people lying in bed back to back and they got their phones up and their lights are lit up by the light of their phone. And it's the new thing, of course. And, Somehow work gets in here, and it, and, it, and it keeps separating these people out. Should I take that new promotion? I don't, I don't know. It's going to take more of my time. I'm already working 60 hours a week, but my family, they need the money. And then you have to say to yourself, does my family need more money, or do they need more of me? And, and the, these things can get in between us, and they separate us out. And and sometimes it's even the kids that get in the middle here and they come between a husband and a wife. The marriage was already a challenge. We already knew that was going to be hard. But now you're not just husband and wife. Now you're mom and dad. And sometimes people mistakenly lay down the husband and wife hat and they pick up only the mom and dad hat. And and that's the only one that they really give thought to. And, And that's the only one that they really care to work towards but really it should be jesus at the center here jesus marriage and then we put the kids maybe on on another level down here because but unfortunately sometimes once the child comes mom or dad or both eventually abandon the needs of their spouse and they put the child in the center of the relationship which is an absolute disaster when it plays out and what this translates to often is an is an empty nest that reveals an empty marriage because it should not have been prioritized like that. It's anemic and it's sickly and it's malnourished because it has not been given the love and the attention and the energy. The marriage is meant to stay. The kids are meant to go. So to put the the kids at the center is to build a plan that's not sustainable. And if you won't date your spouse, the devil will find someone who will. Adversity comes, hard times arrive, relationship challenges are a given. And how about we start fighting for our relationships and not just in our relationships? How about we start fighting for all that God wants us to experience? And Jesus put it best, what God has brought together, let no one separate. So that's the mentality, that's the game plan, and so a summary word, to help you to think about, to focus on this, to come back to, a word that can guide you. How should I behave? What should I be like? That word is honor. I think it's a word that we have uh, already been speaking that God wants us to inject into this powerful thing that is sex and romance. And we've talked a lot about it already in the last couple of weeks. We talked about honoring sex by recognizing that we didn't come up with it, but that God did. And if he invented it, He should be allowed to tell us how to utilize it. And that's not wrong for him to do. It's not hateful. It's not manipulative. If he invented it, obviously he knows best how to use it, right? So when you have a problem with your phone, say, right, and and you you decide you're going to jump on the internet to see if I can find some tips and tricks on how to get access to all the features that I want, you don't go and look up a different brand, right? They made it. They're going to be the ones who are able to tell me how to get the most out of it. And so if what's happening in your sex life, in your romance life, in your marriage life isn't going well, it's not getting the results that you would like it to be getting, one of the things, perhaps, we consult the owner's manual. Because God is the one who came up with all of this stuff. And honor is what we use to approach all these subjects with. We honor God. We we, we choose to honor people. And listen, this one's really important too, in this category especially. We are meant to honor ourselves as having been made in the image of God. Treat yourself with respect. And it's great to say, you know what, I'm going to take a stand for honor. Awesome. Yay. Do it. But know that it's going to take strength. To rise up in honor. It's not going to be easy. It's easier said than done. It's going to take a lot of work. And that's how you spell a good marriage W O R K work, 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 work. That's how you're going to be able to work your way towards a good marriage. That's how you get there. That's how you arrive there. It takes effort. That's the great relationship that God has available for you. It's going to take effort. It's going to take work. It's going to take sweat. It's going to be difficult. There's going to be moments when it's going to feel like it sucks. Uh, Maybe for single people, you get, you get out there and you feel like, I'm, I'm, I'm looking, I'm shooting for God's best for me, but there's going to be isolated moments. There's going to be maybe like a Friday night, maybe there's going to be weekends, maybe there's a March break trip that your friends are going on and you feel like, wow, I just, I just am getting the short end of the deal. And, that, and that's when you've got to kind of zoom back out and you've got to think follow through you got to think big picture. you got to work the strategy that you, that you want to employ to get through this time. And then once you've made the choice to continue on in that plan that God has for you, to make sure that your spouse is nourished so the relationship can flourish, I think we could employ the strategy that Moses and Joshua, they used. Two simple steps. Moses raises his arms and Joshua drew his sword. Moses said, I'm gonna get a couple of guys and we're, and we're gonna go up onto the top of the mountain. And when I'm there, I'm, I'm gonna raise up my arms with the rod of God in my arms. And that rod is a symbol of God's power. So uh, it's the same staff that he was holding when the, when the Red Sea was split. Same staff he was holding when the Nile River turned to blood. So demonstrating God's power and, and him raising his arms up is a symbol of him accepting God's power. It's the symbol of a life surrendered. So you ever wonder why at church sometimes people, um, they might want to raise up a hand or they raise up two hands. We raise up hands as a symbol of a surrendered life. I I need your power. I need you. It says, God, I need your strength. I, I need your power. And so Moses was showing us that we raise our hands up to heaven. We focus on God, but Joshua, at the same time, down below, he's drawing his sword. So Moses said, "I'm going to go and I'm going to go pray. I'm, I'm, I'm basically, I'm going to go to worship right now during this battle. I'm going to put my focus, my intention on God. My mind will be focused in that place. And then to Joshua, I need you to go and fight. I need you to go and draw your sword. I want you to go and fight like you've never fought before. What does this tell us? It tells us that if you want to get to where God wants you to get. It tells us if you want to experience what God wants us to experience, it's going to require both praying and having a plan. It's going to have to be spiritual and logical. It's going to have to be theological and intensely, nuts and bolts, practical. So it's going to have to be a plan, a plan that you work out and a prayer that you pray. I think a lot of times people get that mentality where they say, just let go and let God. When you should say, I'm going to trust God absolutely, deeply, passionately. And I'm going to go and get to work. That's what we need to do. So you raise up your arms like Moses. Pray, worship, focus on God. Get your heart in the right place. Yeah, but you also need to draw your sword like Joshua. Arms raised, sword drawn. Trust God, yes, but don't be dumb. From Joshua, we learn to keep a cool head. Keep a cool head. He was doing a practical work. Thinking about it, planning it out practically and I think one of the practical steps that we can take is to maintain make sure that we maintain a cool level head so interestingly enough the cheetah is the fastest land mammal since you were asking Uh, cheetah can reach speeds of up to 120 kilometers an hour but did you know that the cheetah can only run until their brain hits 105 degrees fahrenheit 41 degrees celsius who knew right but at 41 degrees Celsius, which is the top end of their 120 kilometers an hour, they start to overheat. And of course, you can imagine the strain on all the muscles in the body to run like that. <coughs> their brain hits 41, and they have two choices. One, stop and pant until the brain cools off. Option two, die on the spot. But if they keep running, they can't keep living. But the gazelle, the gazelle is what they're frequently chasing, uh, the gazelle, their body can run up to 43 degrees, and at 43 degrees, their brain will still be at 41 degrees, because every time a gazelle breathes in newly inhaled air, it passes through a chamber where the blood is being piped on the way up to the brain, and it cools it off just a little bit. So the gazelle has a better air cooling system of the blood that allows the uh, ability to achieve a higher body temperature before their brain goes into heat fatigue, shuts down, and ends their ability to live. And that's why if the cheetah doesn't catch them right away, the element of surprise, take them down early, then the gazelle, with a lower top-end speed at about 97 kilometers per hour, but has a longer endurance, and can, of course, then get away. The one that got away. Why do gazelles live when they escape? Literally, this is a case where cooler heads prevail. So know about yourself. As you try to draw swords on temptation, try to try to deal with these big things that, that get in between you in your marriage. Know that they will frequently start small, as small as a little fox. And King Solomon tells us about this in Song, uh, Song of Solomon 2:15. Catch us the little foxes. Catch us the foxes, the little foxes that spoil the vines for our vines have tender grapes. Apparently there's an Eastern, a Middle Eastern fox that would come in and eat the buds that, that would never get to nurture, that would never mature and, and, and grow up into ripe grape plants. So if you can wipe out stuff small, it will never have the chance to keep growing and growing and growing and becoming a big problem. So we need to draw our swords on the little foxes. Things that you might be tempted to justify, right? And I think frequently... Uh, when temptation's concerned, especially in, with, with things like pornography, with flirtatious kinds of friendship relationships that could grow and blossom into a full-blown affair and mistakes eventually. I think if we cut these things off when they're small and, and we keep a cool head before we get into these situations when the flames of desire are stoked, like a, like a stallion will go and impale themselves on a fence to get to a mare, that's in heat. Well, there comes a point when the blood is just just pumping and and it's so hot and, and you're not thinking anymore. You can't see clearly. There are no questions being asked and answered. And so if you can avoid the situation of temptation by cutting things off small before they ever have a chance to get big, then like Joshua, you'll be drawing your sword on things that would eventually cause us to live lives of sadness and regret. Keep a cool head. It's good advice for when you're in a fight and you're flustered and you're kind of losing your mind there too. Things are not going the way I want them to and you're about to say something and you regret and you're, <coughs> you're about to go nuclear, you know, and say something that you don't want to say, do something that you can't take back because words are like toothpaste, once they're out you can't suck them back in. Take a breath. Be like a gazelle. Cool your brain down just a little bit. Think through what you're about to say. Take a breath. Take take a lap around the block. Go for a drive. Do what you got to do. Just cool your temper. Cool your jets. Slow it back down. Be mindful of the big picture. Be mindful of what you really want to get to. Don't sacrifice it in a moment. Second thing, the lesson from Moses. Moses would tell us to build your life on the rock. Arms raised. Moses is on this hill with the rod of God in his hands, and he's standing. We're going to go up and stand on this hill, and I'm going to raise my arms to God. But his his arms got tired. And it got so that he had a hard time keeping on praying. He had a hard time worshiping. And just like we do, Sometimes it's difficult to keep our heart with God. Sometimes we drift. We we mentally allow ourselves to disconnect. We we, we fade away. Then it becomes hard to make the right decisions. And so then his arms would droop. And when his arms would droop, so would the power for what Joshua was doing down below. When the arms go down, Joshua would start to lose. When we lose focus, our ability to live out practically is challenged. So Moses got some friends, Aaron on one side and her on the other side, and they were so awesome because they brought with them a comfy rock, and they put the rock right here. And Moses was able to sit down on it, rest his legs, get into a better frame. And then they each grabbed one of his arms, and they held them up in the air. And what they did was they created a life hack that, that was able to help them achieve what they needed to achieve in a more expeditious way. And now he's sitting there. Resting with good friend on this side and good friend on this side, and they're, they're holding his arms up all day long, all day strong. He's fighting the battle. His focus can stay on God because he wasn't doing it alone anymore. His life was now built on the foundation of the rock, like yours will be when you decide to make wise decisions and surround yourself with the right people. You got to build your life on the rock so that you can keep your relationships from being on the rocks. That's what God wants you to know, that to take that, to hold on to that. And it makes a difference because there have been studies that have been completed where it shows you that married couples who attend church together regularly, they pray regularly, they read their Bible regularly, they take their faith seriously, they're as much as 35% less likely to divorce. These little decisions put God first. They build your life on the rock. They give you a firm foundation to fight from. And then with the right people in your life, it makes it much easier to do the right thing. You will get better and better at making wise decisions and then living with fewer regrets. And as you fight for all that God wants for you, and you find that your arms are getting so tired, you find your arms are getting weak, there's so much that's distracting me. I, I have a hard time, and if you could just go eyes up again with Jesus. Look to him. His spirit is prepared to give you the power to do what you cannot do on your own. Would you pray with me? Father, we're grateful for this time in your presence. We're thankful for the power in your word and the good plans that you have for us. By your power, cause us to grow in wisdom, grace, hope, and trust. And Father, please bless my friends who are listening. I pray that you would bless our marriages and bless our relationships. Give us wisdom to identify those little foxes in our lives and then the courage to act and capture them before these things grow up into full-blown problems. Bless your people now in Jesus' name.